Welcome to our Fixing Healthcare podcast show, Breaking the Rules. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur. I'm also the host of the Popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO at Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. Robert was the CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the two best-selling healthcare books, Mistreated and Uncaring. If you want information on a broad range of healthcare topics, you can visit his website at robertpearlmd.com. For this holiday season, we're going to give listeners a special treat. In addition to our usual programs, we're going to replay a few episodes from season one of Fixing Healthcare. Our guests in that season took on the challenge of offering their plans to make medicine 20% better in quality, 20% lower in cost, 20% more accessible, and 20% more satisfying for physicians and patients. My hope in replaying these ideas is to help listeners once again realize how much could be done to transform American healthcare and improve people's lives, and simultaneously help them recognize how far we are from delivering the excellence in healthcare Americans want, need, and deserve. Over the past four years, medical costs have continued to soar. Life expectancy has decreased. Access has become more challenging and burnout has become an epidemic. I believe the fundamental challenge is the lack of healthcare leadership. And that will be the problem season eight of Fixing Healthcare will tackle starting in January of 2023. Today's episode will feature Zubin Demanya, aka ZDog MD. He's healthcare's leading social media rock star. He has a virtual army of nearly 2 million healthcare followers. His ideas are powerful and his vision inspirational. I'm confident you'll enjoy the program. Z-Dog, welcome to the show. Wow, that's a funky introduction. I love it. it makes me seem more uh, more cooler. Is that the right term? More cooler than I am. Thanks for having me, uh, guys. It's really an honor. Dr. Z-Dog, if I may call you that. Please consider yourself an applicant for the job of leader of American healthcare. Yes. You're being hired due to your experience and reputation as a visionary leader and innovator. You're being hired because after decades of talking about the unaffordability of healthcare coverage and nearly 20 years of lamenting lacking quality and over hundreds of thousands of deaths nationally each year from preventable medical error, our country is ready to make a major change. As I told the audience, we're not interested in small incremental fixes. We're simply trade-offs among cost, quality, and service. But instead, we believe disruption is possible, and you are the right person to make it happen. The deliverables are significant in size and scope. But unless we can achieve this level of improvement, we don't believe over the next five to 10 years, the American people will be willing to move forward. Dr. Z-Dog, we'd like you to provide a plan to achieve the following. Number one, increase life expectancy in the U.S. from last amongst the 11 most industrialized nations, at least to the middle of the pack. Two, increase quality outcomes as publicly reported by organizations like the National Committee for Quality Assurance, the NCQA, by 20%. Decrease cost of care by 20% using federally reported data. Four, 
improved service and convenience by 20% on patient-reported satisfaction surveys, and five, improved professional satisfaction for clinicians by 20% on physician satisfaction survey. You'll have 10 minutes to do so. Outline the system of healthcare you believe is capable of accomplishing all five of these outcomes and the steps you will take to get there. Please start, Dr. Z-Dog. We can't wait to hear your thoughts. Geez, Robbie, no pressure. All right, here we go. I think the first thing we have to distinguish if we're going to address this huge, huge, huge issue and you're trying to actually lead change is that there's this distinction between how to pay for healthcare, which is what we talk about all the time, and what you're actually paying for. First, we have to fix what you're actually paying for. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to invert our healthcare system from a sick care reactive system that puts Band-Aids on problems and sends them back into the street to a focus on actual healthcare, prevention, education, et cetera, that actually keeps people out of trouble. And in order to do that, the first thing you have to do is start inverting the, the problem we have in this, in this country, which is too many specialists and hospitals and not enough primary care prevention, OB-GYN, pediatrics, geriatrics, family medicine, internal medicine, et cetera, in order to encourage more of that, because we have good data in our experience with Turntable that actually focusing on relationship-driven, preventative, team-based care can actually lower downstream costs for those other things. So we need less hospitals and we need specialists who practice at the top of their license, not a billion of them. So in order to do that, we need to, again, focus on this idea of prevention. Now, when we talk about increasing life expectancy in the US, most of what we do in medicine doesn't do anything to accomplish that. So this question is a tough one because in order to increase life expectancy expectancy to the middle of the pack, we need to address where the actual problems are and that is the non-medical determinants of health, genetics, the your zip code, socioeconomic stuff, nutrition, education. And those are things that in this country we do a very poor job uh, relative to other countries of actually addressing. Medical care may only address 30 to, you know, 10 to 30% of actual uh, life expectancy stuff. So the way that we can help is by first of all improving uh, care, focusing on prevention, education, primary care, keeping us out of trouble, and then taking the savings and funding education, nutrition, built environment, schools, uh, violence prevention, uh, poverty amelioration, those sort of things. And and so. If you're going to use a medical system to address it, primary care is the perfect vehicle actually for doing the best you can to address those issues. One way to do that is you start with a, first of all, getting rid of uh, the sort of perverse incentive of fee-for-service, so make it a capitated sort of fee to take care of people and keep them out of trouble. That's what we did at Turntable Health. Uh, Focus on uh, a primary care doctor, but who's staffed up with a team of people who can help. So these are not necessarily all clinicians. They can be uh, health coaches drawn from the community that speak the language of the community that are trained up to do motivational interview to look at, at, at motivational interview to look at shopping lists to actually go to patients' homes to look at the social determinants of health to teach an elderly woman how to use the bus so she can become independent again. It doesn't take an expensive and highly trained physician to do that. And then what 
what that does is it frees the physician to spend time doing what they do best, that high-level intuitive care that is evidence-informed but never evidence-enslaved, using technology instead of as a billing apparatus or a data acquisition apparatus, but as an actual apparatus to free us to have that relationship, to have clinical decision support, to flowchart out not just the patient's problems and diseases, but who this patient is as a human being, and then empower that whole team to actually accomplish change. So well-resourced, team-based, relationship-based primary care, which means capitation, it means teams, uh, it means... Um, tech that actually enables that human relationship that focuses not only on managing the downstream care of relationship with specialists, hospitals, long-term care, emergency care, like community paramedicine and those sort of things. Yes, we have to be deeply integrated in that sense, and integration is a key part of it, but also managing the upstream causes of disease, which are those social determinants. And the best way we found to do that is with on-the-ground health coaches who are deeply involved in the patient's care and who come from the communities that they're serving. And that's a lesson we learned from Turntable Health. This, if you're starting then to talk about how you're going to uh, increase quality outcomes, well, first of all, you know, NCQA and the other thing, it's a great idea. The truth is what it's done in practice is the measurement industrial complex has turned doctors from doctors into data acquisition clerks. And we're teaching to the test. We're gaming the numbers. A lot of these quality measures don't really measure quality. And so what we want to do is be measuring uh, more people's the processes that we're doing in healthcare. So focus on processes that work. If you're trying to reduce maternal mortality in hospitals, focus on processes that are proven to work, whether it's a checklist to look at maternal blood loss, to make sure we treat blood pressure quickly if it's elevated and prevent preeclampsia and possible stroke and death. Those are the processes we want to focus on, not so so much the click, 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 click that is destroying the quality of care that we currently have by taking away so many processor cycles from the actual relationship and the delivery of care. So that's a key part in terms of quality measures. If we're going to decrease the cost of care, most of the evidence that we've acquired so far is that, you know, if, if you really focus on that 5% of patients that are that are costing 50% of our healthcare dollars, the people with chronic disease, it's going to take, again, well-resourced, integrated, integrated primary care that's team-based, that's technology-enabled, and we've shown that we can drop uh, costs by about 12%, at least on these sick populations. That's a huge amount. In addition, by reducing the number of specialists and hospitals, but increasing their quality and their uh, and their volume level so that they can do really, really good work, we can, we can reduce costs even more. Take that savings, spend it, on programs that actually improve the social determinants of health. Um, if you're talking about improving service and convenience, uh, the best way to do that is simple things like end-of-life discussions had by people that don't even have to be clinicians. There was a Stanford study that showed patient satisfaction and end-of-life uh, documentation improved when you have a lay health worker who has these conversations. Go where the patients need us. Telehealth, visit, phone, email, Skype. All those things are where our patients want us, but instead we're stuck behind a clunky EHR that was, it looks like it was built in the 90s or worse. It looks like it has a DOS prompt. Go where they need us. Also, not everybody needs a doctor. Sometimes a health coach, a licensed clinical social worker, the team, the nurses, the respiratory therapists, those are the people that are on the front lines as well. So we need to encourage that teamwork at where everybody's practicing at the top of their training. And listen to our patients. 
And that requires time and resources and tools to do that so that we're not pandering to them with, you know, uh, uh, hokey complementary medicine programs that a lot of hospitals are putting in place just to increase revenue. If they think comp these sort of, you know, acupuncture, those kind of things are helping them, we need to listen to why that is and support them without encouraging magical thinking. So that is not a useful part of patient satisfaction. If we're gonna improve professional satisfaction for clinicians, okay, I'll tell you at Turntable, our clinicians were supremely, supremely satisfied because they weren't inflicted with moral injury. And that's what's hurting us, this idea that we have one foot in a fee-for-service world, one foot in a capitated world, one foot trying to please the administrators and the NCQA people, and one foot trying to help our patients. We went into it to help our patients. If we have good physician leadership that can help us cohesively organize around these principles, give us the tools, the resources, and the latitude, some degree of autonomy to take care of our patients with clinical decision support from an electronic health record that is not just a glorified cash register, we can transform that. That's how we do the care part of it. How do we pay for it? Well, <laughs> partially it's gonna matter less because it's gonna cost less. You're paying for something that works. If you're talking about single payer, you're talking about paying for something on a grand scale that already we've proven, Robbie, doesn't work. So this is what I would propose, and it's based on some ideas from a frontline direct uh, primary care practitioner, uh, Dr. Newhoffel in Kansas City. We have a personal health account that everybody's required to have to the tune of about two grand. That can be funded by individuals if they're capable or the government or employers. Once that money is spent, and that can be spent on a good integrated primary care to start with, that's a flat fee per month, so they have access to that. Uh, and it has broader uh, application than a health savings account or something like that. After that's done, you have a deductible. And that deductible depends on your income and your ability to pay it. Once you reach the deductible, and it may be that the government subsidized it, it may be that employers like uh, Chase, Amazon, Berkshire's new thing funded if you go in their highly proven networks. Then the last thing is, catastrophic insurance with a Medicare, a new Medicare for all. That is what insurance was meant to be, which is a catastrophic insurance. High deductible, pays for things like if you get leukemia, if you're in an accident, et cetera. And it is obviously paid by the government, but individual companies compete to administer those dollars in a way that is competitive. And so I think my 10 minutes are up, but that's uh, my uh, vision to how on how we can fix healthcare. It's tremendously exciting, uh, Dr. Z-Dog, and I'm particularly pleased that you separated out the coverage, the insurance piece from the delivery system, because as you pointed out, if we can't address the quality, the service, the cost in the delivery system, the insurance companies become very irrelevant and can't do much about it anyway. Let me take your agenda, which is uh, very comprehensive and excellent, and try to ask you to break it into pieces. Let's start with the first one, which is prevention. Can you explain to the listeners what you mean by that? How many measures are you looking at? How do you think about accomplishing it? What's possible if we really were to focus on prevention through the model you talk about, using the teams that you describe, what can we expect to have delivered as a consequence of that? So think about it this way. If you have a team that's taking care of an individual, and let's say they are, the cat's already out of the barn, they have chronic disease. Now you have a health coach and a doctor and a social worker who are all optimizing around this idea of chronic disease. How do we uh, help a diabetic to take their medications? How do we help them to get off medications? How do we help coordinate the care with their downstream specialists and hospitals? How do we know when they're in the emergency 
department and can help figure out how to prevent that in the future. You have huddles every morning. When they come in, you're actually part of their lives. You are not an episodic transaction of care. You're part of a relationship with them, which means they, it's interesting, we had we had feedback from our uh, patients that said, you know, I, I came to love my health coach. I cared about them. I didn't want to let them down. So I took my medications. I came to my appointments. I learned about my disease because they made me care about them and also care about myself. And I didn't want to let either one of us down. So this idea that relationships can actually help in terms of prevention, particularly with chronic disease, opioid epidemic, instead of knee-jerk giving out opioids, uh, we can actually sit and get to the root causes. Was there trauma? Is there PTSD? Is there uh, Are there emotional issues that we're medicating with these drugs? And that requires, again, relationships with our patients. Um, if you're talking about preventing disease in people who are well, that means you have to be a part of their lives. Many of us don't think about medical care until we need it. So if you have a health coach who's like, what are your goals? Are your goals to run faster, be able to bike, or your goals to be able to hang out with your grandkids, and then f functionalize a plan around that so that even when you're not in the in the office, you're kind of thinking about that. They're texting you, you're coming to our classes in our teaching studio, you're a part of this bigger movement, you're learning how to cook in our teaching kitchen on a food budget, on, on a budget in a food desert without um, a lot of sugar, without going out to eat all the time. These are the tools we can give our patients to actually prevent disease. And for the sick patients, it keeps them out of the ER. We showed about a 50% reduction in uh, urgent care and ER uh, admissions. Uh, and for the well people, it can keep them out of trouble. Now, documenting that, Robbie, that's the challenge. Because if you ask me for evidence of keeping a well person well, it's a lot harder because it can take years before you're going to show you do, you prevented a case of diabetes. When I was a CEO in Kaiser Permanente, we did some study on it. About somewhere around five years it takes to see the improvement in outcome when you measure when you manage blood pressure and blood lipids and other aspects that help people to cut it down smoking. But it's not forever, and it clearly happens scientifically. And once you've accomplished that, it grows across time. So uh, I understand exactly what you're saying. Let's move on to the second part, which is the hospitals. Hospitals are one of the most expensive parts, maybe the most expensive part of the American healthcare system today. I was really pleased to hear you reference the maternity data. Some interesting stuff came out this week, 40% of women in the United States are not getting the maternity care they need with thousands of people dying unnecessarily. We think we have the greatest healthcare system and here we are, young healthy women dying in childbirth. It's really unfathomable to me. How would you restructure those hospitals? How would you downsize, consolidate, centers of excellence? What's your thinking about how you'd restructure that hospital system in the United States today? Well, you know, I'm glad we're having this discussion because I'm a hospitalist and this is sort of my my specialty. And what I would say is, you know, a single hospital trying to be everything to everyone is very, very hard. Toyota would never do that when if it's trying to build cars because you'd never be able to isolation, uh, you'd never be able to isolate failure points in the the process because the process is so chaotic. And maternal care is a great example of that. You have all these different hospitals doing different things with different processes. And look, we all, everybody on the front lines bristles at the term cookbook medicine and algorithms and checklists. But the truth is there are some things that it's just been shown. If you just follow this particular sequence of things like a pilot would and Atul Gawande and others have talked about this, you can reduce mortality and human suffering. It's unconscionable that we have this. So the first thing you do is you take everything that has been shown uh, to work and really apply it as a standard. And then you, what you wanna do is take hospitals and kind of break them into their into their bits and bites. So 
a surgical hospital that does elective procedures very, very well uh, should really optimize towards that. And it should be, you know, geographically accessible to uh, a, a triage or urgent care or emergency center that can then send patients to those places, maybe even faster than they would get transferred within one single hospital. Uh, and so I think transforming that and then ultimately realizing that that probably 50% of what we do not only doesn't work, but it causes harm. And so really focusing our research efforts and our implementation efforts on getting rid of that 50%, isolating it, saying, you know what, it doesn't work, we're not gonna do it. You know what works? Washing our hands, you know what works? Um, weighing uh, maternity pads to see how much blood is actually lost and acting proactively instead of reactively to blood loss. Those kind of things are, I think are gonna be crucial. It's gonna take a quality improvement culture that hasn't really existed. Uh, and it can't be at the expense of um, uh, a physician sanity. So we have to we have to weave it in from medical school in our training uh, as part of our culture. Would you achieve the very difficult process of, I'm going to say closing, because if you're going to downsize uh, the, the demand, then you need fewer facilities. If you want to maximize the, the volume in each, you need fewer facilities. Would you see this happening through a group like LeapFrog, setting a minimum number of procedures, deliveries, uh, surgeries, whatever it might be per hospital, and those that can't meet that standard by having enough volume would have to give up doing that or at least give up the reimbursement for it? Or do you see some other third party, maybe even um, medically group-led in some fashion, uh, determining which facilities should be closed in order to improve the quality of care we provide to people in the United States today? Mm, that's a great question. And I'm always uncomfortable with third parties making these decisions on clinical matters. But I'd say this, if it's led by physicians, and it, you know what, at turntable, we had what we called our good guys list. And it was an internal thing because look, we're doctors, we go to these facilities, we work with these surgeons, everybody in a facility, every nurse knows that one doctor or two doctors who they would never send anybody to, they wouldn't let their worst enemy go to. And it's an un, this is not transparent to patients, it's not transparent to organizations that regulate us, but it's known to the staff. So here's the question, if, if the staff know, why can't everybody know? So there's a means by which, you know, and when we would pick the hospitals that we like working with, the special that we thought wouldn't uh, do a cardiac catheterization for GERD uh, and would communicate with us and we would help select those. So I think this idea of medical people, medical groups helping with that. The other idea is that, you know, if, if you have a big um, uh, self-funded employer that's part of a big consortium like what uh, Amazon Berkshire and Chase are trying to do, uh, if you have clinicians working with them that can help feel these things out, they're going to vote with their money. They're not going to have their patients, their employees that are valuable to them go to a place that doesn't do enough cardiac casts. They would rather put them on a plane and send them to Cleveland Clinic or a Center for Excellence because it's actually cheaper and more effective and more humane in the long run to do that than to send them to a community hospital where the docs just don't do enough of it. When it comes to specialists, how would you evaluate them and would you establish minimum annual volumes in order to allow them to continue to perform the procedures they're doing today with the hope of increasing quality through added specialization and added volume? This is a great question. And again, I feel a little unqualified to answer this. And I think it'd be disingenuous because my specialist colleagues are probably better equipped to understand how volume relates to skill set in surgical 
skill. As a hospitalist, I know that the more lumbar punctures I do, the more central lines I place, the I'm vastly more competent and with less complications. So I imagine the same thing is gonna translate, and I, I'm sure there's some evidence that shows this, that higher volume providers are better at this. What's interesting too is that higher volume providers uh, often often tend to be less expensive. So it's it's a, almost an inverse correlation of, of, of uh, uh, cost with outcome in healthcare, and that's true value, cost, convenience, outcome, we can generate that. Um, so I don't think I'm particularly uh, uh, morally qualified to to answer that in, in real depth, though. Something you left out of your summary that uh, we read about a lot today is the pharmaceutical world. Uh, what are your thoughts mm. on the rising cost of drugs, which now are past half the cost of hospitals and are going up at double the rate at the current time? It's tricky because I... I agree that our pharmaceutical industry does a lot of great good in the world, and especially the medical affairs people who are working really hard to cure and, and treat diseases that have afflicted us for millennia. The, the downside is, of course, we have an, an enterprise now where this is becoming vastly unaffordable. There's huge abuses on the business side and costs can continue to inflate. So what we need is an ability to collectively negotiate with huge leverage so that we can keep prices under control. We may need to change the length of patent expiration. Generics need to be encouraged. And we focused on that a lot at Turntable because to some degree, we were being measured on that by um, the, insurance the one insurance company we were working with. Uh, generic administration and 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 so those sort of things and then also changing the uh, requirement process to get drugs approved. You know, right now we use surrogate markers and those aren't great, but the truth is it's so expensive and so complicated and so much overhead to get a drug approved that no company's willing to take the risk. And so we need to change that calculus uh, and we need to do more research on doing research on how we can make our science better so that, you know, I, I suspect, Robbie, a lot of the drugs we use don't really do much good to be honest, uh, and 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 you know we we're looking at incremental numbers needed to treat, you know you need to treat a thousand people to have an effect. That that that's not cost effective, and it, and it co comes with a price, which is complications, side effects, etc. So I'd like to move into an area that for our listeners may be uh, unclear, which is that you noted the fact that only ten to thirty percent of medical outcomes is related to the medical care that's given. That means at least seventy percent relate to these other factors that you outlined. And you spent a lot of time, and I agree with you, focusing on the social determinants of health. When I talk to physicians, they often use this as the excuse. Our medicine is the best in the world. It's the social factors that are not. And yet you have a very integrated notion of how you address both of those problems. Can you really expand on that? Because it seems to me that's very central to what you're saying about the solutions to American healthcare. Yeah, and I think this it, this is you're right. This is the central crux, which is, uh, you know, if you look at the Great Britain, they spend nine percent of their GDP on healthcare. Uh, and arguably have better outcomes. Yeah, sure, people have to wait. You can talk about socialized medicine, and I'm not advocating socialized medicine. I'm saying that I'm advocating not medicalizing our social problems. In the US, we take a social problem, homelessness, um, you know, uh, uh, drug addiction, poverty, poor nutrition, and we medicalize it. We say now it's the medical system's 
uh, problem. And the medical system pushes back and says, well, we can't handle all this, but we have this very expensive technology that we can throw at it and we will. Uh, and that, that's, that's, it's, that in itself is not, it's not correct at all. It's not a good way to manage this. What we should be doing is going, instead of putting in the four Tesla magnet, um, you know, to, to, to scan a bunch of people who have headaches that don't need to be scanned, uh, we should take that money and those societal resources with some will and say, no, we're going to actually figure out what's a better way to maybe level playing field so people can get jobs, look at nutrition, look at those kind of things. And, and we don't necessarily do that uh, very well in this country. But then what happens is it all falls on our, our shoulders in healthcare. And so you have an event like what happened in Baltimore where a patient was pushed out onto the street with mental illness and it became a national scandal that how could this, you know, uh, um, University of Maryland related hospital pushed this patient out on the street and it's patient dumping. Well, those people working the front lines there in that emergency department are seeing the failures of our political will to manage social uh, situations all the time. And when one thing went wrong and clearly something went wrong, they are all blamed, even though it's their life's work to take care of this patient population. That's not fair either. So we need to come together and say, how can we solve these problems? And some of it may honestly be, and people are going to hate this, shifting money from healthcare to the social determinants directly, which means the same doctors that are complaining that they can't handle it because of the social determinants are going to have, there's going to be a fewer of the specialists in hospitalists, hospitals and uh, more focus on those social determinants. So one of the things that we're kind of hoping for with this show is to bring on people that are just your average healthcare consumers. Um, earlier, you talked about capitation, and that's something that I don't know that a lot of them would necessarily understand what that is if they've never had experience with it before. Can you explain capitation versus fee-for-service and why you feel it's superior? Sure. So fee-for-service, which I think has really no place in primary care in particular. Maybe it has place in high, you know, high-end specialty consult, consultative care where you don't know what's involved, but even that's debatable. Fee-for-service means I charge you for every little widget I do. You are no longer a relationship to me. You're a transaction. So in other words, if I were, you know, Robbie uses a great example of remodeling his kitchen. If you're, if you're remodeling your kitchen in a fee-for-service way, the contractor wants to do every little thing to your kitchen to rack up as much payment as he can. And it's an unconscious thing. Doctors don't do this uh, consciously, but it, it incentives do drive behavior to a large degree. Now, capitation, think of it this way. It's like a pre-paid Netflix plan. You pay, you know, uh, 20 bucks a month for Netflix and you get to watch uh, the videos that you want. In healthcare, it means you pay the clinicians or the health system a flat amount of money and their goal is to keep you healthy for that amount. Now, I think that in itself may not be enough. I think what you need is some incentive to continue to work really hard and improve your efficiency and care so that you can share some of the savings that are generated when you actually do the right thing for patients. It should be that by doing good in the world for patients, we do well financially. And I think capitation and its variants are the closest to that, especially for primary care. But let me ask you a really tough question. Uh, you run a tremendous organization, Turntable, for four years and then ultimately went out of business because of the financial realities that you faced in that environment. You've just outlined a very aggressive and I think very optimistic plan for how we might be able to solve it. What didn't happen in your Las Vegas experience that you think that this new model will do in order to become successful? 
I think the main thing we were missing there were there were many failures, uh, Robbie that that were that I take responsibility for. One is that at Turntable we tried to bring the model I talked about to as many people as we could. So that meant there was a direct pay component where people were spending you know eighty dollars a month uh, to have unlimited access to us and our healthcare coaches and our and our uh, classes and those kind of things and the doctors. And that was one bag of patients. Then you had the patients who were part of Nevada Health Co-op, which was an insurance plan that was not-for-profit that was started under ACA uh, loans, et cetera. And they um, said, you know, we'll give you guys uh, a per patient per month capitated amount, take care of our patients who are on the exchange. So they're getting federal subsidies to have access to you. And that was great. So we had a big bag of patients for them. The problem is trying to care for two different schizophrenic groups of patients, meaning for the people were paying out of pocket. Some of them were uninsured. Some of them had insurance. Which insurance they had? How, who do you refer to? How do you coordinate their care? Which lab do you send them to? It's all the same fragmented nightmare that we're dealing with in general. And then for the insurance side, when that insurance company went out of business and closed, we lost you know 3,000 patients. And that really prompted us to have to close. So this idea that you don't have a value network that's actually going to provide a uh, 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 a payment for a progressive model that works that we show saves costs in the long run and in the short run and that may cost a little bit more right up front because primary care we're spending more on it we're spending three times what they spend maybe four times what they spend normally in Las Vegas you know $18 per patient per month or something maybe is what united spends for patients for primary care and they get what they pay for fragmented crappy care with lots of specialists uh it's specialist heavy so this idea that we didn't have a value network. Now, if you had a value network of patients also who are a bit empowered with a little bit of skin in the game where they have this 2000 bucks and it's like, well, I can spend it on a really good primary care doc who will keep me out of trouble, keep me from spending it downstream, uh, that's helpful. So having that support structure and the Medicare for all component of it is, again, a very high deductible catastrophic plan that keeps people from medical bankruptcy. Because honestly, Robbie, we felt this taking care of people. There's a moral injury that occurs to us when we feel like we have to treat patients differently because of their insurance status. When we have to treat an undocumented immigrant differently for dialysis, uh, they can only get it emergent in the ER than somebody who has insurance. When we look at transplants and things like that, it, 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 it's, it creates moral injury and therefore, quote unquote, burnout. It's really moral injury in our physicians. And that's not a sustainable thing. So I think the differences that caused us to fail is we didn't have that structure. We were a little too early uh, with the model. Oh, one, one more point, Robbie, and you guys at Kaiser had this and we didn't, integration, being able to say, you know, our specialists and our hospitals and our ERs are all have their skin in the same game instead of each pulling at cross purposes and sharing an electronic health record, having intraoperability. And that would help our patients too, because if they have access to their record, they have access to their record everywhere. And that's true portability of data. So we didn't have that either. Let me return back to the, uh, the thing which you raised on moral injury, because I think you touched on a very, very important point uh, when we talk about burnout. You know, when I, when I wrote the book, Mistreated, why we think we're getting good health care, we're usually wrong. And I went on the various talk shows and TV shows, and people were calling in. I was sure that physicians were going to say, this is terrible. Um, you're, you're, you're saying negative things about our profession. Uh, you, you're, you're telling patients about all the problems that exist. And it was exactly the opposite. You know, I heard about the depression. I heard about the suicides. I heard about the burnout. I heard about all the factors that people had from the current system. 
if you and I both agree that the current system is inflicting damage on physicians, not just patients, how come physicians are so resistant to embracing the kind of model that you're describing? So this is a million dollar issue that if we don't address, we're going to fail. And this is why I think, you know, uh, physicians and frontline healthcare practitioners that are a big group of my followers, we have a tribe of 1.7 million people that they've come together because they have had it. They've had it. They're tired of the moral injury of feeling pulled in multiple ways and being devalued. And I, I think, Robbie, it's because of this. When we start in medical school, our conditioning begins. We're conditioned to take facts from above that are passed on by generations, 50% of which probably aren't true, and they don't tell you which 50%. Then in the second two years of medical school, you're taught to obey authority. It's really a guild apprenticeship that's bypassed the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was all about questioning authority, Galileo standing up and lifting a middle finger to the church and saying, you know what, the sun goes around the earth. Uh, You know, it doesn't, it's the other way around. And what we do in medicine is we say, no, 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 we don't question authority, we don't ask questions. It's about the Greek system of fealty to authority uh, and learning to kiss the ring of the attending physician so that one day the bargain is you'll be the ring that's kissed. Well, that is a recipe for inertia, for risk aversion, for uh, compliance with hierarchy. And I think that happens. It pulls us into our careers where we we are told, be resilient to a system that, yeah, the system's broken and this and that, but you need to adapt to it. You don't change the system. That will never happen. It's too big. It's $3.4 trillion, whatever it is. And so that, I think, is our fundamental conditioning. In order to break that conditioning, we need voices and leaders who are willing to stand up like yourself and write a book that's going to, you would think would make people really angry, but actually it resonates deeply with our moral outrage as clinicians. And you can then start to make a dent in this, uh, in this inertia and this lassitude. It's immoral what we're allowing to happen. And yeah, and we know it. And that's why we use the term burnout. It's not that it's a, it's a moral injury. So we've left out the most important part of the healthcare system, who's the patient. And so let me ask you, what do you see as the role of the patient? And how do you as a physician work to change people so that they can improve their own health? You know, this is, and again, you kind of nailed it. Like we, we can talk wonky about the system, but if you don't put the patient at the center of this, then none of it matters. You tell in your book stories about being a patient, about being a patient, uh, your father being a patient and going through the system. I've been in the system myself with my parents, with myself. You, the minute you get that experience, all the training and everything goes out the door and you realize exactly how powerless you are, how confused you are, how fragmented the system is, how poor the communication is and how bad the technology is. So in order to empower patients, first of all, we have to listen to them. We have to give them time in our relationship so that they develop uh, and continue trust with us, and that we understand who they are as a human. And you know, like, people like uh, Dr. Abraham Varghese. You know, the, many people accuse him of being a luddite, you know, fearing technology because he wants to get back to the bedside. Talking to him in person, really, what it is is no, he just wants technology that allows us to listen to our patients better. If you had an EHR that told the patient's story in a visual chart, not just how sick they are, but who they are as people, and that the patient had access to that and could contribute to that in a meaningful way that they could understand. If we spoke less in jargon, that's why we use health coaches, because health coaches are drawn from the community. They speak the language of the patients. They don't speak Latin. And and doctors learn from them. They learn, oh man, I've been saying this the wrong way. There's data out of Stanford that patients hear, especially through interpreters, they hear 
totally different things than what we think they're hearing. And until we listen to what our patients are hearing to begin with, we're never gonna understand how to actually prevent disease, to have a therapeutic alliance with them and actually reduce bad outcomes and improve costs. It's never gonna happen. So they're the center of all this. Do you ever engage them with any of your musical talents or rapping? <laughs> well, that so that's the fun part, Robbie, because uh, ever since I kind of unplugged from the matrix of uh, full-time hospital medicine, I, I'm not worried about losing my job. So I can make these uh, rap videos that really focus at educating patients and I can, we can be a little edgy. So we did a, a parody called Can't Feel My Face, which is a parody of a song that's called Can't Feel My Face uh, about uh, by The weekend, And instead of making it about, he was doing it about drug abuse and cocaine and so on. And, you know, it was a pretty edgy tune. We did it about, you know, what are the signs and symptoms of stroke? And how can you recognize them and understand that young people have these symptoms and young people are increasingly having strokes and people blow them off thinking it's nothing or it's stress. And, and you need to act fast with the acronym, you know, right? The facial uh, uh, droop, arm weakness, uh, speech slurry, time to act um, and add balance, be fast, balance and equilibrium and that sort of thing. So you can do a song about that. You can do a rap that educates patients because education is, again, a key component of dealing with some of the social determinants. What happens when someone collapses out in the street? Are people gonna do CPR? Many of them are scared. They don't wanna get a disease by doing mouth to mouth. They remember the teaching from the old days and they remember you know, things like, well, how fast am I supposed to push on the chest? I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Young people won't remember staying alive as a, you know, uh, as a way to keep pace, you know, you can't tell by the way I use my walk. Yeah, that's 100 beats per minute. But you know what else is 100 beats per minute is Usher's Yeah, which goes. And that's about 100 beats per minute. If you're pushing on the chest like that, we did a song about hands-only CPR, forget about the mouth-to-mouth. -mouth, and then you come out with the rap and you go, look out, mouth-to-mouth's ridiculous in the club when the mouth's vesiculous. And yo, the protocols are out of date. Blowing air down his pipe is so 2008. So forget about that. I'm gonna squeeze the chest. CPR hands-only when your homie arrests. So you can do that sort of thing and people will remember that. And they'll remember that, oh, that was actually a Stanford-trained physician doing that. So maybe I'll, there's credibility and the song stuck in their head. And so innovation in patient education is a crucial part of building what we call, you know, health 3.0. You talk about healthcare 3.0 and you know, you mentioned that on your website and some of your speaking, can you explain what healthcare 1.0, 2.0 and ultimately 3.0 is? Absolutely. And I'll do it very briefly. Health 1.0 is that cottage industry that Robbie and I kind of trained in where it was about a doctor and a patient. There were a lot of little community hospitals everywhere, little private practices. And it was about this unfettered relationship that wasn't fettered by regulation or electronic records or anything like that. It was also not fettered by evidence-based medicine, randomized control trials, uh, electronic technology. And that relationship was also very hierarchical. It was paternalistic. The doctor held all the cards. There was a lot of abuse of other people in the system, like nurses. And so that health 1.0 was not our highest game. The reaction to 1.0 was 2.0. 2.0 is what I call the measurement industrial complex. So where we're now trying to apply all the uh, principles of business to medicine, but we've somehow lost the heart of it. So electronic records, boxes to click off quality measures that maybe don't 
necessarily measure quality, um, more commoditization of uh, physicians, uh, and everybody's equal, but not necessarily in a good way. So we give patients information, but we don't give them the heart and soul of what that information actually means, what we would do for our loved ones. So that game has led to a lot of burnout. And the moral injury has come from the conflict between 1.0's old fee-for-service, 2.0's, you know, mechanization and and assembly line medicine, and this this push and pull between. So what 3.0 is, is it says, look, 1.0 and 2.0, stop fighting. Uh, If 1.0 is the shore and 2.0 is the boat, let's stop pretending the boat is the destination. The destination is a new shore where we repersonalize medicine, using technology and electronic records that actually serve the relationship. We're paid based on outcomes that actually matter to our patients. It's mostly team-based. We treat everyone like they're the most important member of the team, including the patient. And we do all that in a way that's scalable and sustainable, not just for the, the enterprise, but for physicians and patients both. And that takes the best aspects of one, which is physician leadership and autonomy, with the best aspects of two, which is quality improvement, business principles, uh, uh, integration, those sort of uh, quality uh, science and uh, technology. And then what what actually emerges is actually transcendent. It's bigger than the sum of its parts. And I think when people intuitively feel what that means and patients experience it at turntable, they go, oh, that's the answer. It's been sitting there. It's not that complex, but we need the value structure to actually support it. And that's going to take some time. Let me ask you one last question, if I could, uh, which is if you had to, if you, if you were going to move forward implementing this plan at a national level, what would be the first couple of steps that you think we would need to do to start the ball rolling? I think the first step, Robbie, is gaining a critical mass of physicians, nurses, respiratory therapists, hospital administrators, people on the front lines in partnership with patients standing up and saying, you know what, we believe in this vision and we think that we need this and we're going to help. We're willing to to sacrifice a bit in the short run to make this happen. And we know it's going to be turbulent, but we absolutely have to have this. And I think if we could at least have a general consortium and consensus of this. Then the second step is to reach out to business leaders and go, your skin is the most in the game on this. Uh, Okay, Atul Gawande, Amazon, everybody in these big, the Zappos of the world, this is good for business. It's good for America. It's going to take an albatross off our neck that is 19% of GDP. And let's start moving with that. At that point, it's going to be incumbent on our political leaders to start listening to this this really big groundswell of movement. And so those would be my first two steps. Certainly 1.7 million listeners and followers is a good starting base to begin with. It's a, it's a mob that's just ready to have some pitchforks. <laughs> <laughs> Jeremy and I are ready to join on. <laughs> I love it. So Dr. Z-Dog, we've asked you a lot of questions today. What are some final thoughts that you have for this listening audience? I think the main thing that we need to realize, guys, and I'm addressing everybody here, including my followers, the Z-Pack, it is going to take all of us to affect this change. When you have tremendous leaders like Robbie Pearl, who helmed an organization that's done a lot to improve healthcare, and again, none of these organizations are perfect, now coming out and saying, okay, I'm going to tell you guys, I'm going to highlight these bright spots. 
we can catalyze change in a way that has never been seen. Between social media, video, these sort of platforms, we can get these messages out to the world in a way that would have taken a hundred conferences at stodgy, you know, Vegas casinos about, you know, two decades to reach critical mass. We can catalyze that. So if you guys are on board, we're on board with good leadership. We can actually transform our system in an amazing amount of time. It's not just something that is a nice to have. It's a must have if we're going to continue and survive. Even as a nation, we have to do this. It's a moral imperative. I also want to thank Robbie for everything that he's doing to to spread the word about transforming medicine. I sense that this is a new mission for you that's even beyond the mission you had for so many years working with the Permanente Medical Group, that that now you can really use everything you've learned to 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 make things better for everybody. Dr. Z Dog, thank you again for being on the show today. You were fantastic. I can't promise you that your approach and recommendations will be the ones our nation embraces, but for anyone who thought that solutions didn't exist, you've proven them wrong. This was also a lot of fun. Robbie, thanks a lot for uh, letting me on your first podcast. This is a hugely important forum that you've created, and uh, it's an honor to be here. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at FixingHealthcarePodcast.com. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at FixingHC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.